we look at your word today, I pray, oh God, that we would grow in what it means to walk by faith as we look at Abraham, as we look at Hebrews 11 and Genesis 22. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand what you intend for us to, to learn. Lord, I pray that you would be my strength and my weakness. And Lord, I pray that th this whole time would glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 17 through verse 19. And one thing that it really is exciting is that, uh, you know, you never know how these verses are going to, to lay out when you are going through a book. And you may be thinking, well, he's not preaching about Christmas today, but I I'm excited because we're going to see that a passage that is 4,000 years old, 4,000 years of history of going back to this moment that Hebrews 11 speaks about, that Genesis 22 refers to, is going to bring us right on the doorstep of Christmas. And so today what we're going to do is the message is titled, By Faith, Abraham. By Faith, Abraham. And what we're going to do is just a very, very simple outline. We're just going to look at three points to try to like get handles on what we're learning in verses 17, 18, and 19. And I'm going to give them to you right now so you can sort of follow where we're headed. What we're going to look at is we're going to see a test to start out with. We're going to see a test. We're going to see an offering. And we're going to see a substitute. A test, an offering, and a substitute. Those three points really help us unlock what is taking place in Hebrews chapter 11. Why don't we read the text in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We're going to begin today by looking at a test. When we think about this passage, I, we're going to examine Genesis 22 as we get rolling here in, under point number one, but immediately we start thinking about God calling Abraham to offer up his one and only son. Now, we know that Abraham was a father to Ishmael, but we know that this was the son of promise, that literally he's referred to as the only begotten son because this is the seed promise that would come through Isaac, and this is of ultimate significance. And a lot of people, when they hit Genesis chapter 22, they begin to question the goodness of God. They say things like this, how dare would a good God call a man to offer up his only son? And I want to challenge you with something. I was looking at this, and and, and it really all, it begins and falls with the character of God. I remember years ago um, reading about C.S. Lewis and him talking about the danger of putting God on the dock. 
the idea that we can come before God and question him in such a way as to demean him. There's a huge difference between asking honest questions with humility and seeking honest answers versus questioning God. I was listening to uh, a preacher I have a great deal of respect for, Andy Davis out of North Carolina, and, and, he, and he did something that I thought was very appropriate. He quoted from the Westminster Confession of Faith in regards to who is God. I want to read this to you. Because if we can understand this, a glimpse of this, it gives us understanding as to how to begin to go into issues that baffle us, go into issues that perplex us, issues that we can't really grab. He says this, God, it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures with which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite and fallible and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels in all his works and in all his commands, to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. I think when you read an explanation of the character of God in such a glorious fashion, it helps temper the types of questions that come against the character of God. He's sovereign, he's righteous, next question. You, you following me? You see, I tell you, like, uh, and, I, and I speak this out to every teenager in the room, if you approach the deep things of God, questioning his character, don't be surprised that in your questioning, you end up in a very dangerous and heretical stance. We come to God and we come in light of who he has revealed himself to be. I, you know, when we think about the scripture, it's so important. So many people, they don't study the Bible, they don't study theology, and they have a very weak understanding of the character of God. And thus, they come to the scripture really not understanding who God has revealed himself to be. But when we start from the vantage point of who he is, we can come with an attitude of humility, reverence, and worship as we come to these types of passages and these types of questions. So that's one area. When we think about a test that we see in this passage, we can rest in the sovereign wisdom of God and bringing this into the life of Abraham. And 
For that matter, we can trust in a good and sovereign God who brings the events of our life and help and 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 simply is is sovereign over our lives and whatever we might face. I tell you, um, I don't know what you're facing in life right now, but as you go through the difficulties of life and the hardships of being a human it's important that we look to those in the family album to understand the proper responses as to how to follow God in the midst of difficulty, how we're to look to him. We get into this passage, and the next question, you know, the first question might be, why would God do this to Abraham? The second question might be, why is there test at all? Why is there test? I've never liked tests growing up. I, uh, I tell you, I still get bad feelings thinking about the teacher saying, take everything off your desk and get out a clean sheet of paper. I would break into hives. I hated that. I'd look around the room like, is this real? I, st- I mean, I remember going in a college accounting class, and one day I was late, and uh, I walked in, and Mr. Janky uh, put my test out as he was teaching. As I walked by, and I looked at it, and I said, are we supposed to double these scores? <laughs> I had a 49, and I thought, if we doubled them, I'd get a 98. I never liked tests. And, and a lot of times, again, we, we come up with these strange views of God. It's like, uh, if we're not careful, we sort of get a hodgepodge of theology, and as Southern Baptists, we borrow from what we learn from people we love and adore on the mountain. We borrow over here. We borrow over here. We borrow over here. And sometimes we create this strange place of theology where God is love, but you better stay in line. And if you don't stay in line, he's going to come after you. And if you don't stay in line, he's going to get you straightened out. I'm telling you, I hear more of that type of explanation when it comes to circumstances that people deal with than almost any other thing as a pastor. And one of the things that we have to learn is that God loved Abraham. He loved him. And another thing we're going to see later on is that God the Father was faithful and loved God the Son, even as he gave him an amazingly difficult test to follow through with. If we have a bad theological understanding of test, it could really wreak havoc in our lives as Christians because we might not understand the ways of God. I was listening again. You know, he really helped me on a few points here at the beginning, and and I was thinking already about one of the first thoughts I had in just writing down notes about this passage was understanding how does God view tests in our lives? How should we view them? And and I really felt like Davis said it more eloquently, and it was clearer, and 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 I'm going to borrow it here. The first thing he said was, God brings tests in our lives. He does it for his own glory. He gives us faith and puts testing circumstances within our lives to demonstrate that the faith that he gives will not fail. I love that. He's faithful. He demonstrates the endurance of faith even through the very test that he brings within our lives. And we've been learning in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a faithful high priest. He intercedes for us. That's comforting, isn't it? 
He intercedes for us. He says the second reason for test is to bring about greater assurance. And he mentioned the fact that Abraham had greater assurance of God's love for him as a result of coming through the test. I uh, was thinking about the book of James, and James, while using a different word, they're very similar in the sense that God initiated the test. And you see that in Genesis, you see it in James, and you see Hebrews allude to a similar idea in chapter 11 as well. And that's what he's bringing up in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. But, but the, the test is, is, is not to mock. The test is not to scold. The test is... Is, is an exercise by God through which he's not only faithful to his own glory, but that he's faithful to his promise to conform us into the image of his son. Do you realize this morning, I want you to think with me, that God's purpose, it says in Romans chapter 8, in chapter 8, verse 28, and I want you to go to verse 29 here, and look what he says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I want you to think for a second. Do you realize if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, this is God's faithful guarantee and promise that this is his ultimate goal within our lives as believers, bringing himself glory, conforming us into the image of his son. And here's what we have to understand. Apart from trials, circumstances, sufferings, and tests, this would not be accomplished. Now, do you understand that? That's important. Because sometimes we look at it as if the believers that have it together don't experience tests. They don't experience trials but that is lie. That's a misnomer. That's a misunderstanding of the scripture. And I want you to be comforted by this. I want you in your mind right now to think through people that pop in your mind that God used in the pages of scripture. And I want you to start asking yourself, what type of tests and trials did they go through? And immediately you're going to start finding, oh my goodness, if I am dealing with suffering, I have much in common with the people of God. Why? Because God's faithful to carry out his promise to us to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of his son. So when we look at Abraham and we look at this test, we see the reality that God does it for his own glory, that, that he brings about this test and often demonstrates his faithfulness in the faith that he's given us. He brings about assurance he brings about so many different aspects. He brings about a purification in our life. He purifies us in a test. He purifies our faith. Another reality that he does within a test, Davis mentions, is that he tests our faith for the good of others. How many of you in this room have been encouraged by seeing a believer go through circumstances that were difficult, when it demonstrated a response of faith and praise unto God. How many of you have been encouraged within your own Christian life? Anybody in the room? I tell you, everybody in this room could raise your hand if you've, if you've lived it all looking with your eyes open. Because when you see people go through suffering and they, by the grace of God, 
walk with him, it encourages and it brings edification to the entire body of Christ, to the glory of God. So as we get started, remember 1 Peter 1.6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Notice Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So immediately, we can't question God in the test. We have to rest in his righteousness, his sovereignty, his goodness, but we have to understand the test. The test is not out to get us. The test is actually signifying the faithfulness of God in bringing about his sanctification in the lives of his people. But I want you to look at the details of this particular test. We read our text in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, but I want you to look with me on the screens at Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the first six verses. This is the account of the narrative of the story that Hebrews 11 is pointing to. It'll help us as we walk through this passage. In verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which, pause here, three-day journey. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, Together, I think the first two verses immediately grip the emotions of all of us. And, and immediately, you see, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, whom you love. God had a purpose and a plan. And we see throughout this passage that Abraham trusted him. You know, it, it's fascinating because when we go to the Hebrews account, what we're looking at, what we've already read, if you got your Bible open, look at that. Notice the test. I mean, the test is severe automatically because this is the son he loves, but it even complicates things probably in the life of Abraham when you mention the reality of verse 17 when it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and then listen to what it says, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, and then it goes further, 
Let us tell you who this son is. Isaac, by the way, in case we forget, verse 18, of whom it was said what? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham had received the promises. Isaac was the one through whom the promises would come. So the first thing we see in our text is we see a test. The second thing we see here is an offering, an offering. When we look at this offering, several things I want us to notice. And, and right off the bat, we learn some things about this offering. If you just look, we've read it, but we may not have been looking specifically for information about the offering. So go back with me into chapter 11 and verse 17. And look what he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Immediately, the first thing I see about this offering is that it is an offering by faith in the midst of difficulty. It is an offering by faith in the midst of difficulty. So take that first part. It is an offering by faith. It is an offering by faith. And, and, and again, you know, I don't know about you, but I've read Hebrews before where it was almost like, as some people say, it was almost like walking through a nice museum. You know, it's pretty fascinating. Look at all these guys. These are superheroes of the Old Testament. Isn't that fun? Sunday School 101. But lest we forget, it's not simply to gaze through the museum. This is the family photo album of the Christian, of the people of God. You go back, he, he's speaking to these Jews actually in the context. And what he's telling them is to say, hey, look, if you are tempted to go back to Judaism, let me remind you of your patriarchs. Let me remind you of the fact that there is no other way. If you buy into a lie that would somehow suggest that you can go into a works righteousness system, understand God has always worked on the basis of faith. It's never gonna change. From the very beginning, I mean, he mentions the creation, right? In Hebrews 11, verse 3, I think it is. By faith, we understand the worlds were created. And he immediately jumps in really early. He jumps in with Abel. He jumps in with Enoch. He jumps in with Noah. I mean, he's going all the way to the main people before the flood. And then he's going to go after the flood. And he's going to demonstrate there's no other way. And that's what the word of God has been teaching us. First of all, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So what he's doing is he's saying, look, and this is what we have to understand, I think, is, is this is what I'm getting. It's like, look, God's calling me to walk by faith in the circumstances of my life. You understand? God's calling us as Christians to understand that the way to live the Christian life is to live trusting in the character, the promises, and the power of God. The way to live the Christian life, the exception of the rule is not faith. The normal Christian life is one of faith. And so he starts it in verse one. He goes into verse six, and what does he say? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is the normal way. So what we look at is we're looking at an offering by faith. 
But notice the second part. And it seems really obvious, but I don't know if it hits you the way it hit me. It's an offering by faith, but it's an offering by faith in this particular passage in the midst of great difficulty. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes I'm deceived into thinking that I can compartmentalize my Christian life and that there's some areas that it makes no sense to trust God and other areas where I might could get around to do that. Are you tracking with me? But yeah, I want you to see the encouragement that we gain here is that God is showing us that faith is not just in areas we feel like we can hand over to God naturally. I can give that to God. That's, that's one I can just let God have. But, but faith reveals itself so often in the most difficult situation of my life. This morning, I wonder if you went around the room. I mean, I know people don't typically just share stuff like this. But I wonder if we went around the room, what is the most difficult thing you're dealing with right now? It could be a fear. It could be a reality. It could be a circumstance, a person. It could be financial. It could be whatever it may be. And I want you to see something. God is calling you through new covenant grace to trust him and walk with him in the midst of your difficulty. And it hit me because as you go through this, you might be like me. You often see that the difficulties of life bring opportunities, but what often do we think those opportunities are? There are opportunities often for anxiety, fear, irritation, stress, indigestion, lack of sleep, turmoil. And I think if we're not careful, you know what begins to happen? We begin to justify those very responses. And we begin to literally share our situations in such a way with others where their responses and their empathy seem to justify the very way we're responding. Are you tracking with me? If you go to somebody with the heartaches that you're dealing with in life, if you go to somebody sharing openly about the difficulties, there's going to be at least a fleshly temptation not to see it through God's perspective, but to see it through your own fleshly perspective, to see it through man's perspective. And depending on the person that you share it with, if you don't receive biblically wise counsel, you may actually be encouraged in the very response of fear, irritation, turmoil, nervousness, whatever it may be. But what we learn from Abraham is God is teaching us that real faith is not just in the areas we can foresee trusting God. Real faith really lies in the most difficult valleys we can ever go through. God will be there and is faithful. I tell you, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult because uh, you often see the rub in your own life. And, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, like, uh, I'm just like you. I'm on a journey of God growing me. But so many times in my life, this is where the rub hits. Because I can be studying a passage. I can be preaching a passage. But it all comes back down to 
the Holy Spirit will bring to light in my life, just like he'll faithfully do in yours, the areas where I'm tempted not to trust God in the least. And God is pointing the spotlight on those areas of my life because my whole entire life of faith is proportional in how I respond in those areas. It hits everything else. But what do we see? This is a life of faith in response to God in the midst of difficulty in light of what we just learned about test, that he does it for his own glory and our good, that he does it to bring assurance. He purifies us. He does it for the edification of the body of Christ to the glory of God and all of these things. So we need to learn, I pray, that this offering initially is one of faith in the midst of difficulty. But notice something here. It's an offering of faith in God's character, his promise, and his power. You see, when we look at this passage, we looked at it last time, Genesis 22, verses 7 through 10. Well, we didn't look at that passage last time. But in this passage, in Genesis 22, 7 through 10, let me read that. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I can tell you one thing. Apart from an absolute confidence in the character, the promise, and the power of God, that would have never happened. Never. And I want you to think with me. How do we put this in perspective, you know, in our own today, December the 19th? Apart from our own lives being shaped by the grace of God and being convicted and convinced by the grace of the Lord to see that God is reliable in his character and his promises and in his power, we will never trust God in difficulty. Never. What do we see here, though? This builds, this builds because God worked. He, he had faith in the character of God. And we saw this last time. You remember how we looked at the difference between the, the ESV and the NIV? And one points out Sarah trusting in the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. One points out Abraham. How, wherever you lie on that, the point is they trusted God and they trusted his character. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. It's faith in the character of God. Faith in who he is. I mean, this is, this is foundational. If, if we don't believe that God is good, if we don't believe, think about it, Hebrews eleven six. he who comes to God must believe that he is. It not only speaks about his existence, but it speaks about he is in relationship to how the Bible has revealed him. It speaks of his character. You can't walk by faith. Not only you have to believe in the existence of God, but you have to believe in who God is revealed in the word of God. He is. He represents all that the scripture says he is. 
But not only did he believe in the character of God, he believed in the promise of God. And, you know, we just read it, but we were talking more about the faithfulness of God. But look how that verse ends. Since she considered him faithful, who had what? Promised. Promised. The promises of God. And what was the promise of God? He had faith not only in the character of God. If he believed that God was faithful, he could then trust his word. I mean, think about it. If somebody comes up on the street to you, I have people come in here all the time. A guy came in yesterday. I didn't know whether to believe him or not. He told me a story. I don't know if it was true, but he told me a story, and I believed it. But he told me a story. I know nothing about the man's character, but because I didn't know his character, it led me to doubt his story. But I'll tell you another thing. If somebody comes in this room and, and tells me something, and I know them, and I know their character after several years, I'm going to look at it differently. You see what I'm saying? You see, it's important when you think about this life of faith of walking with God. If we're not walking with God, why would we trust God? If we're not walking with God, how would we know God? If we're not walking with God in his word, how would we know his character? So one of the things that could be going on, because think about it, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, isn't it? So one of the things God may be revealing to you in a way that loves you in a way that is encouraging you is that you will never live a life of faith if you're not walking with God. You don't trust someone you're not walking with, but if you're trusting him and walking with him, God is calling you to understand who he has revealed himself to be, to recognize the faithfulness of his dealings with you in the past that you can rely on him. He's trustworthy. He believed in the promise of God, the promise of God specifically in this context was what? The promise in Genesis 21. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He believed it. It was a process. I've already mentioned to you, Abraham didn't do everything right throughout this entire story. There's a lot of things that point to his humanness and his struggle with his own sin. But what do we see? He trusted in the faithfulness of God. By God's grace, he trusted in the promise of God. He believed in the promise of God, which leads us to what? I mean, he leads him to do the third part. The third part of this is he not only believed in the, prom, the character of God, he believed in the promises of God, he believed in the power of God. This is phenomenal. Did you catch verse 19 earlier? Why could he go through with this? Because he's reckoning in his mind, okay, God is good. God is faithful. God's told me that Isaac has to have a son. And if he has not had a son, there's no other way but for him to have a son. Therefore, if he is a burnt offering, God must raise him from the dead to be faithful to what he said he would do. Therefore, God's getting ready to do a resurrection. You look at Hebrews 11 verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now think about it. In Genesis, in Genesis 22, the first 21 chapters speak nowhere of a resurrection. There had never been a resurrection. 
Now, Enoch walked with God and no longer was, but that's not a resurrection. Now, the only resurrection, though, this is exciting, the only resurrection that Abraham had experienced was being 100 and having a child. Because if God can take a postmenopausal woman at 100 years old, and if God can take an old man who has no chance of having a baby, and he can bring from death to life that. He, I love this. I mean, it's like, uh, again, you know, are, are you remembering the faithfulness and the goodness of God in your life? Because I don't know about you, but I got a short memory sometimes. God has been so faithful to me, but I tend to forget everything in the last, you know, if it hadn't happened in the last 30 seconds, I tend to forget it. I tend to look in the Old Testament and be reminded of the children of Israel when you're thinking, come on, you hard-headed people, get it together. God has shown you over and over and over. Let me ask you something. Has God been faithful in your life? Let me ask you something. You, you, you look at this, and he, he had nothing but the character of God, the promise of God, and the power of God. The power of God. It keeps going, though. Hebrews eleven nineteen mentions it, but there's another angle. There's two parts in the narrative of Genesis 22 that speak about how Abraham was envisioning God being able to come through. The other one's in Genesis 22, 3 through 5. I love this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. Every part of this is an act of faith. He rose early in the morning. He's getting ready. He's got a three-day journey. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose. Cutting the wood was an act of faith. Getting out of bed was an act of faith. Going to the place of which God had told him, look at this, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. But look at this. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and what's the last phrase? And come again to you. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, and I'll be back in a few minutes. No. He says, we'll be back. We're coming back. No, wait a minute. He's going up on that mountain to offer up a burnt offering. How in the world is he coming back with Isaac? Because he knew that God had to be faithful to the promise that he gave him in Genesis. He knew that God would be faithful even if he had to raise him from the dead. And you know what? Actually, Genesis 22, it's almost as if there's different ideas in his mind, wondering how God is gonna be faithful, but it wasn't a question of whether he'd be faithful. It was a question of how he'd be faithful. Look at verse seven and eight. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Isn't that awesome? He believed that God would do what he said he would do. Romans, Jerry read a lot of these verses, but this two verses here, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And look at this last verse, 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But then the final part on this point too, we see his test, we see his offering 
It's an offering by faith in the midst of difficulty. It's an offering in the character, promises, and power of God. But this is an offering that we are called to emulate, and obviously God's not gonna call us to offer up our only son. What's it pointing to? I think it's pointing to the reality of what this offering represents. He was willing to offer, to bear, to bring what God had called him to bring. And the language of the text speaks about the reality that that he was, it, it speaks of him offering up Isaac. And you think, wait a minute, he didn't. God stopped him. God provided a ram stuck in the thicket. He didn't offer him up. But what's the text speaking of when he says it twice about the offering that he gave? It speaks of the fact that he was fully, wholly committed wholeheartedly to doing what God had asked him to do, and God stopped him. I love this because it reminds you, it may not be the best parallel, but what popped in my mind was I was thinking about this is a guy who is worshiping God as best he knows how in spirit and in truth. And truth represents what God told him to do. He's going to follow it by the book. In spirit, it means I'm going to bring all that I have to it. It's not just going to be external. I'm not just doing it. I'm doing it because I trust you. I'm doing it because your character is impeccable. Your faithfulness is sure. Your promises are legit. Your power is able. He comes to him and immediately you start going, wait a minute, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Well, I want you to think with me. You know, the question comes up, what are the Isaacs in our life? I mean, are we willing to lay down our dreams? Are we willing to lay down our goals? Are we willing to lay down our ambitions for the things of God, those things that are precious to us, those things that are of value to us? Are we willing to lay those things down? And the passage that just comes back over and over to me is, is, is actually in Romans 12, and, and it's actually a word when he says, I'll show you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present. The word present here is a synonym of another Greek word that we're reading in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 for the word offering. It's very closely related, and it's the idea of, look, the life of the Christian is lived presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. As I was listening to uh, Dr. Davis talk about this text, he was mentioning Thomas Manton spoke about the Isaacs in our life, and he spoke about, you know, you uh, denying yourself is giving up your Isaacs. Mortifying the members of your body is giving up your Isaacs. Learning to reason by faith is giving up your Isaacs. By God's grace, seeking to learn a pattern of unquestioning obedience is giving up your Isaacs. And Manton finishes off the list and he says, putting all of your hope in your future bodily resurrection is giving up your Isaacs. I tell you, let's not make the mistake of learning about Abraham, but not building a bridge into our own day right now. If not, we begin to self-justify every way we're not following and trusting God in the moment. 
and not seeing, hey, you know what? I love this. You may be thinking, but you don't understand. I have a hard time trusting God with the unknown. I have a hard time trusting God with the, that which is I can't see. But, but, but that's the gospel, isn't it? That you need new covenant grace in order to be what God intends you to be. You need a substitute, just like Abraham needed a substitute, or really you could say Isaac. He desperately needs a substitute. You need a substitute, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not you attaining to something. It's looking to the grace of Jesus to find a better way. Third, we see a substitute, and then we're going to finish up. This is fun, y'all. This is so fun, and, and it's not the, the word fun's not the best word. It is a, this is so, uh, this is so worshipful. Because what we see here is that God provided a way. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. They laid the, wood on the, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he says the very same thing he did in verse 1. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Can you imagine the jubilation of looking up and seeing that ram? Oh, you can only wonder what we can imagine took place in that moment of Abraham, I would imagine in my speculation of embracing his son and joy for the fact that God had provided a substitute. You know, we look at this substitute and we are reminded that just as God provided a ram, God has provided a substitute for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard growing up as a kid, and I don't know if this is just one of those old preacher lines, but it's fun to think about. They said, you know, as Abraham, think about Isaac's willing to be bound. Isaac's got wood on his back, walking up a mountain, Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide. And as he's walking up, the preacher said, you know, while he's walking up with Isaac, there's a ram walking up the other side. I don't know if it happened like that, but it's fun to imagine, isn't it? God was way ahead of them. The faithfulness of God had preserved Abraham's only son to preserve the ultimate son. You see, when we get in, look at this, this is amazing. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, be myself, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now look at this next verse. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring. Now notice this. 
as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. I was in a seminary class in Portland, Oregon about 25 years ago and a godly man, Dr. Laney, he basically got so fired up in this verse. He says, don't miss the last part of that verse. And your offspring shall possess the gate of what? His enemies. Guess who that's speaking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Galatians 3.16 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. We look at this, and this passage is not only showing the preservation of Abraham's only son, it is pointing to the reliability, the power, and the wisdom of God to preserve the ultimate son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, though, this gets more and more exciting. I think that's what maybe was going on in John 8, 56, when Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. <laughs> he saw it and was glad. But look at verse 19 of Hebrews 11. We're, we're coming down the runway here. Hurry. Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now notice the next phrase. It's very interesting. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now notice the word figuratively speaking in the ESV. The New American Standard translates it like this. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a what? A type. The word figuratively is a word that literally means parable, and it literally can mean type. What have we learned about a type? That there's a greater reality coming in the future. There's a greater reality yet out there that, that what Abraham experienced, it was like a resurrection. Even though he didn't die, figuratively speaking, he was dead and God brought him back. But here in verse 19, we see that God intended for this to point towards a greater reality in the future. Wow. You start looking at this passage. I was looking at one article. The, think about the parallels in this passage. Abraham offered up his one and only son in obedience to God's command. And what does John 3.16 tell us? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We keep going here and we see that Isaac was obedient to his father. Jesus was obedient to his father. Isaac carried the wood for the burnt offering up, burnt offering up the mountain. Jesus carried the wood of the cross up the mountain to his place of crucifixion. Abraham and Isaac had a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. You got parallel after parallel after parallel that points us to this amazing reality that is fun to speculate and fun to think about. I want you to think about this reality here. It's what is, what is going on? What is going on? I was looking at a children's book, one that we've given out to kids in the past. It's a book that is amazingly 
about biblical theology. And the lady that writes the book, she phrases it like this. So put on your speculative imagination here. She says, and as they sat there on the mountaintop after God had provided the ram, watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them, but they must trust him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked and do what his father do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the lamb of God. I was reading, uh, years ago, I was reading a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And Packer makes a comment in here that, that hit me because I knew he talked about the incarnation. And listen to what he says. He says, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. And we do not understand it till we see it in this context. The key text in the New Testament for interpreting the incarnation is not John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He goes on here, he says, Here is stated not the fact of the incarnation only, but also its meaning. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. You see, today, as we get right into the week of Christmas, I want you to remember when we look at the parallels between Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and God the Son, and we see the resurrection typology of Isaac coming from the dead, as it were, pointing to a greater reality of Jesus one day being raised from the dead. I want you to remember we cannot celebrate Christmas without reflecting on why Jesus came. Jesus came to be our substitute. Jesus came to be the ultimate ram in the thicket. But unlike Isaac, who was rescued because of the ram in the thicket, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christmas is a celebration about the substitutionary lamb of God being born in a manger, one who would take our place at the cross. And it reminds us, you can't go through Christmas and understand it correctly and think for a moment that you can earn your way to God because Christmas is the announcement of his life for us. And the last thing I want to tell you this morning this Christmas, I want you to think, wouldn't it be tragic if we celebrated Christmas this year yet didn't live believing the one who has come is capable 
of being faithful to us in our darkest times. We can't celebrate Christmas apart from trusting in the character and the promise and the power of God. What is God calling you to trust him in today? I was thinking about what Mike's saying, oh, holy night. And that one line in the song says, let all within us praise his holy name. You know how we praise his holy name? We praise his holy name, not just by song. We praise his holy name by deeming him worthy, by deeming him able, by deeming him good in what we're dealing with in our life. So this Christmas, be reminded, don't simply celebrate a baby in a manger. Celebrate the God who's faithful to come be our substitute the God who loves us so much. You know, at the very end of this, and I, and I told you I was done an hour ago, I apologize. The, at the very, did you see what Hebrews says? Hebrews says, today's the love candle. I didn't plan this, but did you see what, what, what it's, it's announced about Abraham at the end of the chapter? You get down and, and, it, and it says what? It speaks about the reality that God knew. Therefore, we get down to verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. And all of this, that, that God was aware in Genesis 22 that he trusted him. And the one thing we can always know by looking at the Christmas story, we can be assured of the love of God in Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our worship. Let's bow our head. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, God, that uh, as we go through Christmas, we would be amazed at who you are. Lord, thank you that you're patient with us. Lord, we all can relate in this room to the struggles of not walking by faith. And Lord, yet you love us. Lord, you teach us. So, Lord, I pray as a faith community here at Riverside that, God, we would be a people that are growing in this. And, Lord, I pray today that we'd be receptive to your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would look to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You stand.